I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open in your Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is where we will find ourselves this Lord's Day. As obvious, our pastor is away at present. He and his wife are in Tempe, Arizona, ministering at our sister Expositor Seminary Church campus there. We're grateful that they have that opportunity. We remember and pray for them this Lord's Day, for us gathered here. Obviously, we pause the study in the midst of the Gospel of John, and at least for today, with the Lord's help, we come to look at James chapter 4. Our message this morning is entitled quite succinctly, D-V. Let's ask for the Lord's help. O great triune God, the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who sits on the throne and rules over all, you, the great God who has revealed yourself in this book, the Bible. We ask that you would now speak, that you would teach us. We humble ourselves before the beauty, the authority, the majesty of your word, asking that you would renew our minds, renew our affections, renew our will, and perhaps, Lord, For some today, would you grant new life? We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, D, V. Have you heard of Versailles? Versailles in France? No, Versailles in Florida. A 90,000 square foot mega mansion with six kitchens, 14 bedrooms, A 35-car garage, a dining room that can accommodate 150 persons, pools, plural, two outdoor, three indoor, tennis courts, a bowling alley, a baseball diamond, and ladies, you might take interest in this, an elevator in the master bedroom closet. (laughs) 
Versailles in Florida, complete with gem-encrusted floors, filled out with Brazilian mahogany, fitted with Pavanazzo marble. It sounds incredible, and it will be if it's ever finished. You see, Versailles in Florida has been under construction since 2004. The owners, we would say, have been quite persistent in their planning. Despite numerous challenges and setbacks, the economic collapse in 2008 that then affected the company that the owners own, financial challenges with Westgate Resorts, leading then to family challenges, even personal tragedy. Uh, Versailles in Florida has been the focus of news articles. It's been the subject of its own documentary, a TV series, and the hope is that one day it will be completed. Of course, after the original delay and with numerous setbacks, Completion was bumped back and scheduled for 2016. But then when it was March 2017, the completion was pushed back a little further to 2019. But then, of course, 2020 happened. So then when it was November 2020, completion was pushed back to 2022. And where are we at today? The wife hoping that Versailles in Florida will be completed on May 3rd of 2023 in time for her husband's 88th birthday. Versailles in Florida offers a parable on planning. Now, it's safe to say you and I are not going to be able to construct and build a house like that. And yet, each one of us might have a plan, our own Versailles-like plan, that despite the challenges, despite the setbacks, persisting in doing all that we can to attain these plans. In fact, it really raises the larger issue of planning itself. What what do you plan? How do you plan? What do you think about planning? You know we all plan, right? School planning, meal planning, vacation planning, financial planning, family planning, One-year plan, five-year plan, ten-year plan. All sorts of goals, all kinds of desires, all types of planning. And yet, as we will see this morning, there is a right kind of planning and a way of going about it. But for there to be a right kind of planning, that necessarily involves a wrong kind of planning. And the passage before us this Lord's Day will come and press itself upon you which planning is true of you. 
We parachute this Lord's Day into James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And as we do so, we come into a book that is more than simply just handling trials. Some have titled James the Proverbs of the New Testament. Rich in its wisdom, practical and punchy in its directions. It's quite direct. It's saying, stop us and arrest us. It makes you pause and think, and all throughout, with all that it brings to the surface, the author of James is calling you and I to follow God's wisdom, God's way, rather than falling and giving into the world's wisdom, the world's way, such is the case with our topic this morning. Let's read James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. A passage, no doubt, familiar to all of us, but a passage that you and I need to hear. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. This is God's Word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city spend a year there, and engage in business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. In this passage this morning, we come face to face with two kinds of planning. And yet, much like an iceberg, with more beneath the surface, we hope this morning to tease out and bring out two assumptions beneath the surface that feed these two very different kinds of planning. Now, you may be sitting here this Lord's Day and be thinking, really, planning? That's our study today? And it's to you that James says, come now, verse 13. Listen up. You need to pause. You need to stop. You need to hear what I have to say. Demanding our attention Helping us see this is more serious than we might realize. James writes, verse 13, come now. And he presents for us this figure, perhaps a very real person in the midst of this assembled gathering of professing believers. You who say that there were some there in their midst, 
perhaps even here among us today, some in our midst who would plan much like this unnamed figure presented to us in verse 13. Someone who seems to have it all together. Someone who is sure and suave. Let's hear his plan. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow... We will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. What a plan. Do you hear it all hammered out? The time, the place, the length, the enterprise, the expectation. So thorough, so precise, so exact. This figure steps forward and announces to all the plan that he has, where he and it seems a few others with him, they will leave so soon. They already have mapped out where they plan to go. They're going to go into a new town, planning and beginning a new business, like a startup in that town. They've evidently scouted out some good location where there will be lots of visitors passing by, hoping to draw them in, and within one year, so giving these customers what they desire that these satisfied customers then become the best salesmen, again, in one year, not just that they will get by, not just that they will get up and off the ground, but in one year, they will be able to turn and make a profit. This is remarkable. It would have been remarkable for those hearing this in the ancient world. Of course, a world filled with merchants and traders and businesses and marketplaces. They'd be amazed at hearing this in the same way you and I often would be amazed hearing someone like this. You know, person who launches their Kickstarter and within a mere matter of moments has the whole thing fully funded. Or like a contestant on Shark Tank, you know, making the pitch and so convincing and so sure that those investors would be fighting one another to get in on this venture. I mean, who wouldn't? This planning? And yet you know all that glitters isn't gold. You can learn a lot not just from what someone says, but how someone says it. How does this figure say this in verse 13? Perhaps it would be helpful to read again verse 13 more literally, bringing out the force of this person's words. Verse 13 reads, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, and we will spend a year there, And we will 
engage in business, and we will make a profit. Four times in one verse, with rapid succession, speaking of the future quite confidently, too confidently. It's how he says it, but you can also learn a lot, not just what someone says, not just how they say it, but also what is left unsaid. And you'll notice in verse 13, in the midst of all the planning, with all that confidence, rather what is left unseen, not even what is left unseen and unsaid, but Who is left unseen and unsaid? Have you caught it? God is completely missing from this individual's planning. We ask then, what kind of planning is this? The first type of planning that James introduces to us Presumptuous planning. Presumptuous planning. Stated differently, this is the planning of a practical atheist. You know what an atheist is? Someone who says that there is no God For someone to be a practical atheist, even this figure in verse 13, someone certainly knowing that there is a God, but living as if there isn't, or more appropriately, planning as if there isn't. And it only makes sense. I mean, where is the focus? Where is the attention? My future, my plans. Four times. We will, we will, we will, we will. And yet you know often the we can merely be a cloak for I. I will. I will. I will. I will. Thinking, planning, looking ahead to the future as if what one determines, what one desires is settled fact as if it is this immutable plan and that when all is said and done, when the one year is up for this figure in verse 13, oh, how he would join with the poet, lean back and croon, I did it my way. right then to call this presumptuous planning. But we need to press this a bit more because we can see what is above the surface with this iceberg, but there's more, more that lies beneath the surface. And so we ask and so we press, what is the mindset? 
the mindset for the planning of this practical atheist. So living and planning as if there is no God. What is the mindset? I am in control. That's the mindset. I am in control and I will get what I want. My plans, my choice. Could this person be you? You sit and you push back on that. No, not me. Don't you know your audience? We're gathered here as Christians. Oh, yes. The same group to whom James writes. That even with Christians, if not aware, we can drift into this same mindset. We can drift and fall into this thinking and planning, so thinking, so acting, so living, so planning, as if we are in control. And going even beyond that, trusting in, finding security in that control. Turning around then and looking upon this control, again, so planning, so orchestrating what's within my control that I then begin to serve control. I begin to look at it as something worthy of worship because I'm drawing from it an assurance, a peace of mind, a sense of security, how I've planned, how I've arranged things. This is what makes me feel safe. Presumptuously planning like a practical atheist. Could this be you? If it is, oh friend, control is a very poor savior. Ultimately, control is an illusion. A mirage. Why then would you plan like this? Why then would you let this assumption, this mindset, fit within your heart? You know, verse 14, you've experienced this in your own life. What James then draws his readers to think and to ponder with wisdom. And admittedly, verse 14, the grammar is a little tricky. I believe the ESV translates this verse particularly in the best way. Reading it then from that translation, James writes, Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're going to go about planning in this way, planning presumptuously, living and planning and acting like a practical atheist, thinking and keeping this mindset and this assumption that I am in control. And James says, that's not how life works. 
what is life like? Number one, life is fickle. Fickle meaning unpredictable, uncertain. That's why he presses, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what today will bring. And some of us know, some of us understand, it can take just one phone call that can shatter that assumption. That in some way, somehow, I'm in control. Hello? Yes? There's been an accident. Hello? Yes? Your child's not responding. You need to come now. Hello? Yes? The test results came back. They're abnormal. Hello? Yes? We've received the scans and we've found something. Hello? Yes? We decided to go in another direction. Friend, life is fickle. That's what life is like in a fallen world. Unpredictable, uncertain, fickle. Not only is life fickle, life is fleeting. Short. Perhaps much shorter than we think our life might be. James again asks, what is your life? Almost pressing as if, have you forgotten? You're mortal. Your life is like a mist. It's like a vapor. It appears and then it vanishes. You know, we're about midway through August. The other night, I made a quick trip to the grocery store. And as I was walking in for the coffee shop located at the front of that grocery store was a large calendar alerting all who would look at it that at the end of this month, August 31st, pumpkin spice lattes (laughs) will be back. I have some of your attention now. In other words, you and I, we're going to blink in the fall. We'll be here with changing leaves, college football, crisp, cool air. Do you remember the feeling of that crisp, cool air? Maybe you got a taste of it this morning when you stepped outside. You know what it is to be outside with the cool fall North Carolinian autumn holding that cup of cider or that cup of coffee and as you blow and sip you look and you watch and what rises up from that cup the steam it's there and it's gone 
there. And it's gone. So silently, so quickly, no farewell makes its appearance and vanishes. And James says, that's what your life is like and my life is like. Like a vapor, like a mist, like steam, here one moment, gone the next. So then, are you going to really live with that assumption deep down? Letting that mindset foster that you're in control? Writing your plans with pen and ink? Holding on to them tightly with a closed fist? Come now. Come now, friend. This is presumptuous planning. In fact, James will tease this out a bit more, jumping to verse 16. He will even unmask and unveil the pure evil of this planning. Evil of this planning? Yes, verse 16. The person thinking and living and planning this way, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Literally, arrogances pretensions, all such boasting is evil. Why? Because it's showing the ugliness of pride. It's living and acting as if there is no God, as if I am in control, as if in some way I am God. And that mindset, that assumption, this proud, presumptuous planning, James has already touched upon it. Looking back to verse 6, if that's you this morning, be forewarned, God is opposed to the proud. You can't state that more strongly. He is against you if you are this proud person. Again, I ask, is that where you want to be? Is that how you want to go about this fickle, fleeting life? To have this figure as your enemy? Oh, there is another way. Friend, there is a better way. Not the way of the world and the way of its wisdom, but rather the way of God, the way of His wisdom, not the way of the proud, but rather continuing in verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. To the humble. This then introduces for us the second kind of planning found in verse 15, sandwiched between the confident, presumptuous planning. We ask, what kind of planning then is this? God's way and God's wisdom, how we ought to plan? Number two, prayerful planning. Prayerful, humble, open, Handed 
written not with pen and ink, but with pencil. Planning. Verse 15, James instructs us, instead, you ought to say, and you can underline it, if the Lord wills. So simple, and yet so much is here. We'll point out a few observations, take a few notes. You can note first, if the Lord wills, it's not as if this is some magical phrase. You know that. Not some verbal rabbit's foot that I'll tack on to the end of my planning and in some way sanctify it in some way even thinking that I can manipulate and turn God into my own personal genie who's going to grant me my wishes. It's not that. You know that. We can note as well, it can at times be appropriate to verbalize this, even to work it into our normal rhythm in life and into our language. You can find examples for that from the Apostle Paul. Not that he says it all the time, but there are some places where explicitly Paul will acknowledge if the Lord wills. Acts 18, 21, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7. We'll note as well, it's not that planning is wrong. You might be sitting here thinking, is that what he's getting at? No, planning is not wrong. We should plan. We should look ahead and map out so best as we can the path forward with wisdom, preparing, planning, thinking, indeed working hard. You need an instruction in that. You can note Proverbs chapter 6. You can enroll in the school of an ant. There's someone who plans and works and looks ahead, or rather something. We'll note as well with this type of planning, it's still in the midst of the life described in verse 14. Yes, life is fickle. Yes, life is fleeting. Christians experience life just like everybody else. This is life in a fallen world. And often it's confusing, and often it is painful. But the difference, the difference here, this different kind of planning, prayerful planning, it looks to God, it says out loud, and it certainly says in the heart, If the Lord wills. So different from the figure of verse 13. There's not that pompous confidence. There's humility. There's dependence that's expressed verbally. Even wrapped up in that one term, Lord. Your God your king, 
you're sovereign, you're the master, you're the Lord, we then draw out and point out this second assumption that will give rise to this second kind of planning. Again, the first kind of planning, presumptuous planning, what's the assumption often unstated beneath it? I am in control. But prayerful planning, the assumption deep down that is different, that governs, that directs, indeed what we must have in all areas of our lives. God is in control. Perhaps that's why the hymn writer would write, frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Prayerful planning begins and operates with this assumption, which, by the way, is settled fact. It is reality. God is in control. It begins, of course, with this recognition that you know that he's in control. You believe and affirm that he's in control. And then in life, in planning, actively entrusting your plans, your desires, your own heart to him. In other words, submission to him. Submission to whatever it is that he brings to pass. And it's often there that what he brings to pass is different than what we planned, is different than what we expected, different than maybe what we wanted. And the response to that, that there, friend, that's the crossroads. That's the struggle. That's where either you humbly bow and submit to God being in control or you kick and you fight and you're angry or resign and despair wishing that you were in control. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, yes, that's what I'm wrestling with this very moment. Is is that it? Is that what I'm supposed to then do? The passage has been pressed upon me, and I then just leave here struggling with the struggle that I entered today with. Let's then press and apply a bit more this doctrine of God. Again, the moments that you and I have, we all will have them. Maybe we have them right now. Where we're fighting, there's this tension between these two assumptions. Press and apply your doctrine of God. Ask yourself, remind yourself of these three truths. Again, so simple, but so much. You ask yourself. In fact, you you tell yourself. You don't listen to yourself, as Lloyd-Jones would say. There are times where you need to not listen to yourself, but tell yourself these things. What then do you tell and remind yourself? Number one, you can ask, is God wise? Yes. All wise. He knows what is best. 
Ask yourself, second, is God good? Yes. All good. Psalm 119, 68. The Lord is good and does good. He knows what is best. He does what is best. Is God wise? Is God good? Is God sovereign? Yes. All sovereign. That means he guarantees what is best. He knows what's best. He does what's best. He guarantees what's best because he is all wise, all good, all sovereign. Well then, I can, I will, I must trust him and rest in the confidence that God is in control. And yes, his definition of best is different than ours often, but it's always better. Always better than what you and I could ever imagine. In light of this, for a brief moment, we have a lot of young people in here this morning. Large category, high school, middle school, elementary school, boys and girls. I'm speaking to you right now. You too this morning need to hear this Bible passage and what James writes to you. Do you have dreams of what you want to be one day? Maybe some of you want to be a teacher. Maybe some of you might want to be a doctor or a nurse. I'm sure there are some here that want to be a firefighter. Maybe also hoping you could be a sports star. I bet you think about that often. And thinking about it excites you. But I want to ask you, young person, have you ever thought, what does God want from me in my life? Not just thinking about what you want, but thinking and even asking God, God, what do you want from me and my life. What does God want me to do? Did you know that he wants you in your whole heart? That you would love him and believe in him and say and trust that he is Lord? The passage this morning from James chapter 4, it encourages you to go and to pray and to ask God, God, I know what I want in my life, but what do you want from me in my life? And I can tell you, 
it's far better than anything you could imagine. You can see that God is so good and he is so great and a life given to him is the greatest adventure that you could ever know and ever live, an adventure with him that will continue from this life on forever with him in heaven. True for a young person, true also for the adult here today. You could be here, sitting here, verse 13 is your biography. Do you think that you're in control, friend? Do you want that to be your Savior? Far better, friend, to acknowledge your sin and instead to look to this God and praise God, the Savior that he's provided, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know You've experienced, you've certainly heard with family and friends that life is fleeting and life is fickle. And amidst all that uncertainty, oh, but there is this certainty that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the foremost. You go to him and you express and acknowledge, I am a sinner in need, and you will find him to be a savior indeed. With that then, James will tell us, therefore, in verse 17, to drive home with a proverb-like statement given again within this context of the two different kinds of plannings and the two very different assumptions that give rise to them. He writes, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it. What is this right thing to do? He's just told us in the previous verses the right kind of planning to one who knows that our planning ought to be prayerful, submitting to the assumption God is in control and yet does not do it, does not follow it, does not live in light of it. He presses again, to him it is sin. It's not enough for you and I to know. You and I must obey. Isn't that what he told us back in chapter 1? Not to be simply hearers of the word, but what? Doers. Doers of the word. It can help us certainly to have some examples Certainly coming out of the Reformation, there's an example. Coming out of the Reformation with many of the Reformers, they would have their own personal motto that would then be expressed with an emblem. And for that Frenchman, John Calvin, his emblem and his motto, the emblem was a heart held with open hands. The motto that would go with it was simply this. My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. 
certainly an example for us to follow, an example that you and I, and even a motto that we can adopt, a motto that you and I can live by, a model, of course, lived by and modeled by not just Calvin, not just other faithful believers, but modeled by our own Savior, who taught us to pray and who himself prayed, thy will be done. Why don't we pray that now? Father, we are not in control. But praise God, you are. We come to you then, humbled by this account, and we then offer up to you our plans, our lives, our very heart. Help us to do so promptly, sincerely, prayerfully. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen.